This is Norm Diamond with the Old Mole Variety Hour on KBOO. Our guest this morning is Sharon Rudolph. Sharon was with us, I suppose, about a year ago as the author and artist for a graphic biography of Paul Robeson. She's here today with a different book. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you for having me, Norm. I'm very glad to have you here. The book this time, the author of, not the artist, um, The Bund, A Graphic History of Jewish Labor Resistance. The Bund, I will say one word and then turn it over to you. The Bund represented a working class Jewish movement in primarily in Eastern Europe that was an alternative to the colonization of Palestine. Tell us about the Bund. So the, the Bund was trying to be the representative of Jewish workers within a greater struggle that would include many, many other workers of different ethnicities. They came very close to being, um, they were one of the two or three most influential groups up to the time that the Bolsheviks completely seized power over the, the coming revolution. There are a bunch of questions. There are a bunch of issues to follow up on. Um, but let's be very clear. You've, you've phrased something that I want to go back to. This was very explicitly a movement of Jewish workers, right? Well, it was an explicitly a movement for Jewish workers, not unlike the movements of my heyday in the late 60s, that many intellectuals and professionals and students amongst the Jews were the people that were actually carrying the tracks and bringing them into the factories and organizing the strikes and, you know, registering the, the supporters and so forth. It, it was a very familiar landscape. The actual people at the at the machines in the factories were not the ones that originated or directed the movement, but they were the ones that were um, organized by the, the, the Bund leaders. We, we go through the people that actually started it and some of the main names it tended to be more intellectuals. Woman representative was a dentist and she would go into the factories where women worked and try to teach literacy to the women workers. But you know, it wasn't the, as in every other revolution that I know of, it wasn't the illiterate masses that actually began the revolution. They they were they were organized by other people who were later then um, viewed as enemies by the successful revolution. And, and this process continues to our day. Now, the Bundas saw themselves as part of a larger movement. At one point, um, you have a very interesting story to explain why they split. But at one point, they were part of the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party, which included the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, or the groups that became Mensheviks and Bolsheviks. So they were part of this broader coalition of working-class-oriented political groups. Why did they end up not part of that larger movement? Well, one of the things that whenever I would try to get help from other older um authors or, or or just people that were interested in the Bund and had some sort of background on the Bund, there were certain issues that no one could agree on and that were real hot button issues that I just had to put aside and say, okay, I'm not going to be able to talk about that. And one of them was the word nation, because the nation calls up the idea of Israel and the Jewish nation. And there were such mixed feelings about that, even, even in the time of the Bund and later. So we didn't use the word nation. The Bund um, 
meetings that they would have every few years to argue about policy and come up with directives and decide who their allies were. Sometimes they said the Jews were a nation. Sometimes they said the Jews weren't a nation. But something to remember is there were dozens of groups of people, Ruthenians and, you know, people whose names you've never even heard of, who called themselves nations, who had their own languages, who had their own cultures that they wanted to preserve, who were working uh, in order to get some sort of freedom for their groups within the Russian Empire and then later to overturn the Russian Empire. Menshevik means minority and Bolshevik means the majority. And maybe the third most powerful group um, shortly before the turn of the 20th century was the, the Jewish Bund. But um, Len was a very savvy tactician. I, I learned to appreciate his skills as a tactician more in, in doing research for this book than I had before. He he wasn't just a charismatic leader of the people who stood up and gave, gave great speeches. He really knew how to maneuver and how to manipulate. And he put an issue before uh, a really important meeting. The Bund wanted to be recognized as the sole representative of Jewish workers. And uh, Lenin put that first on the agenda to be voted on because he knew it would be voted down and that then the Bund would walk out of the meeting. And that's what occurred. And that's how the Mensheviks, the minority became the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, the majority became the Bolsheviks. That's the, that's the origin story. It really made me appreciate Lenin as a tactician. That is the story that I had in mind. <laughs> why, why though this insistence on being a discrete group just for Jewish workers? Well, the language was a big issue. And the, the Bund, one of the big things about the Bund for people that supported it then and now is Yiddish. To, to more upper class Jews and to people that weren't Jews, Yiddish was just, you know, it was like a, a Creole. It was just a, a, a street language of lower class people. And even if all Jews spoke it and all Jews understood it in, in the north, northern part of the world, um, it still wasn't treated with any respect. But the Bund recognized that there was great poetry and theater and and stories and, and life that took place in Yiddish and that it wasn't, you know, uh, an inferior version of some other language was language unto itself, and Yiddish was a great part of the the Bund ideal, and it and it it's a part that survived. There's still Yiddish schools. Um, Yiddish theater became uh, Yiddish silent movies, which became there's a lot about how Hollywood was actually the early movie industry. How much people who had grown up in the tradition of Yiddish theater and Bund thought uh, were the people that helped create the early Hollywood movie system. So. Yiddish, I, I personally don't know Yiddish. I have I have one comic I did in Yiddish here that um well anyways, I can't show it to you because we're not doing it on screen. But it, it's not a language I know, but I recognize how an important part of Jewish culture it is because in moments of stress or moments of great anger, I find I know Yiddish I didn't know I knew <laughs> just from hearing my parents speak and hearing my grandparents speak. It was the lingua franca of Jews and the Bund people, the people that supported the Bund. They felt about Hebrew the way people would feel about Latin or Greek in in 18th century Europe. That you know Hebrew was the language of the church, or it was the language of intellectuals, but it wasn't a language of people. It wasn't a language that you would organize demonstrations in, or or buy bread with, or or make jokes about your family with. And and they wanted Yiddish to be respected as a true language. We still see arguments like that. I I read just recently that. Uh, 
it's one of the Caribbean countries has decided to treat its own language as a language rather than as some inferior Creole that has to be replaced by English. So it was that kind of having respect for the language that people actually used and created art with was, was an important part of what the Bund was working with. I have the impression that really we're talking about class struggles over language, that Yiddish was the language of this Jewish working class movement and Hebrew, not so much of the Jewish workers. Well, that's true, but there's more to it than that. Um, well, here we'll go back to my Paul Robeson research. Paul Robeson always talked like a very educated uh, man of European descent, and he wanted he wanted um, the songs that Black people sung to be treated like European art songs. But apparently, when he actually hung out with his friends after hours, he, he talked like a Black street person, and he told jokes that way. And that was the language that people actually understood and made them laugh and made them love and made them feel at home. People, many people of all different backgrounds have a language like that. And Yiddish was that language for Jews. It was our language. As an alternative to emigrating then and to advocating for moving to Palestine, what was the vision? This was to stay and fight for for civil rights within yes. the empire? Yes, and and then later to, but also to just overcome, to, to ally with other groups. One group they allied with very often was, was the Polish socialists. They agreed with the Polish socialists about almost everything except how important, how much more important Polish freedom was than anything else. And they could never really work that one out. But the Polish socialists would support the Jews even in street fighting. And they agreed with many of the same issues. The Polish people wanted autonomy too. These dozens and dozens of groups within the Russian empire wanted autonomy. And, and while I was working on this, was just when Putin was in the process of trying to annex Ukraine again. So it really made it seem extremely timely and extremely important. This this Russia wanting to be the center of gravity, center of gravity that sucked in all the peoples on its borders and all the peoples on its borders wanting wanting the right to their own. It wasn't just Jews and Christians. I mean, there were Muslim groups on the borders of Russia that were being uh, marginalized. And the Chechnyan struggle is is similar to the Jewish struggle in that way. I wonder whether it is. Because Chechnya, the struggle was to have a, a separate land mass as a nation, whereas you described the, the struggle of the Bund not to have its own territory somehow, not to be its own country, but to be a distinct culture together with other cultures within a larger geographic entity. That's a very interesting and good point you make. One of the things... Again, this word nation, one of the things I was thinking when I was first learning about the Bund and getting ready to start writing the script was that I would have a title, would be something like Nation Without a Nation. It's a Jewish ideal that maybe is a, too high and dangerous an ideal for to have lasted for very long or ever gain any more adherence, but it's a very noble ideal. And one that, as you point out, was wiped out by the Nazis and, I guess, by the, you say, by the Soviets as well. You mentioned self-defense as one of the projects of the Bund. Were they part of a resistance to Nazism? Yes. Um, it was self-defense against pogroms 
in the period before fascism, but when fascism began to arose, there was self-defense and resistance. I think it's coming out more and more that the the cliche of the meek Jews being herded into the ovens, that there was always there were always partisans, there was always resistance, there was always active armed uh, defense. And one of the chapters in, the, in my book um, centers on a, a, a man, Bernard Goldstein, who was a, had great connections to the underworld and used them to continue to get weapons into the Warsaw ghetto and get food and medicine into the Warsaw ghetto and and finally escaped through the sewers and actually made it safely to the U.S. But, you know, there was there were continued to be resistance and the Bund was instrumental in organizing it in areas in Europe. But, you know, it was defeated. It, it couldn't withstand. The people had nothing to fight with, you know, even with except their minds. And they, it was hopeless, but they did continue to fight. You mentioned earlier one woman who was in a leadership position. I want to ask about the role of women in general. In the graphic history that you've that you've given us, women are depicted as leaders, as teachers, as smugglers of literature. That's that's what I remember from having read it. Um, but I don't remember any particular statement in the book about um, a policy or position on the role of women. I'm not sure whether I did explicitly say something. Again, it reminded me a lot of of my uh, my heyday in the late sixties, and and even in the civil rights movement in its early days in the fifties, that it was an expectation that women would achieve literacy and that they would be able to do undertake tasks that had previously been denied them. But the idea that they would actually be given parity with male leaders uh, didn't occur to anybody until much later. I don't think it was any worse in the Bund in 1900 than it was in New York in uh, 90, 1965. But, but it, you know, it, it's only very recently that women have actually said, hey, not only am I an effective revolutionary, I also don't want to make coffee for you guys anymore. That's a very recent development. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. That was actually not my experience in the 60s. There were strong women who were not reduced to to making coffee. But I, I know the experience you're describing was pretty universal. I've been talking with Sharon Rudolph, who is the author of The Bund, A Graphic History of Jewish Labor Resistance. And one last question for you, Sharon, and that is the book is published by Between the Lines, in Toronto, and they seem to have a slogan. It's new to me, but their slogan is Books Without Bosses. Who are they? Well, I, I you know, I'm in my late 70s now, and I have to say I've, I've, I've washed up with a small left-wing publisher. They, they, they must get some funding from the Canadian government. Um, they're a small, very principled, very uh, intelligent left-wing publisher in, in Toronto, and they... Um, they put forth projects that they think are worthwhile, even if they're not profitable. And they're going to be doing a book that, that I just finished a story about Josephine Baker for, about partisans in World War II. They'll have a lot of women, stories about women that have only come out in recent years about just how much real fighting went on with women that, that weren't part of organized armies, but were fighting as partisans. So, um, I mean, Josephine Baker, for one, 
you know, nobody knew what an actually effective secret agent she was until long after she died and the French government let some of the information out. There were, there were a lot of things going on that we're just finding out about now. And, and I, I have to give BTL lots of credit for printing things like that. And there aren't too many people in the U.S. anymore that I'll print things like that. Graphic, graphic novels and quote graphic stories, they're, they're, they get reviewed in the New York Times. They, they only, they've only accepted if they're just as empty and philosophical and meaningless as the other kind of art and literature that gets reviewed in the New York Times. If they actually are full of belief and love and anger and something that'll make people get out in the streets and do something, then, then, then no one in the art establishment wants to touch them. Uh, I think that's what's happened to my medium over the, the last few decades. And that's fine. There'll be other mediums will arise up from the dirt of the streets and provide what, a, what true art can provide. Meanwhile, we have the Bund. A Graphic History of Jewish Labor Resistance. I've been talking with Sharon Rudolph. This is Norm Diamond. Thanks for joining us, Sharon. Thank you for having me, Norm. It was fun. <laughs>